right, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Last time we started looking at um, Job getting to the point where he was saying, what is the use? Um, This is Job's reply to Bildad's speech. Um, We saw in Job chapter 6 him responding to the speech Eliphaz gave. And then we saw Bildad's speech, which was absolutely brutal in his assessment of Job. And now Job is replying to Bildad. And he's basically saying here, what's the point? What is the use? You know, what's the use in pleading or arguing with God? Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? If he will continue with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and hath prospered, which removeth the mountains and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of a place and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun and it riseth not and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Arcturus, Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. What is the use in pleading or arguing with God? Since the beginning, man has kind of, uh, has kind of pleaded his innocence with God. Um, you know, you look at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and it's not my fault. It's, you know, we're completely innocent. It's not our fault. We didn't, you know, mean to do this. It was somebody else's fault. So man has always kind of pleaded uh, their innocence before God. They've debated or argued with God because they feel unjustly treated. You know, how many times have we done that where a prayer hasn't gone our way and we've basically turned around and said, well, why God? That's not fair. But then we don't know the beginning from the end. We don't know why God has stopped something because is he protecting us from something bad that could happen But we don't see that as protection. We see that as something not going our way. And Job addresses the issue in chapter 9 of being right before God and the pointlessness or the uselessness of trying to debate him. How many of you have ever seen a a Christian debate? Like um, there are times when, um, you know, like um, Richard Dawkins will debate certain people around the world and uh, you know, sometimes um, you have a Christian apologist, apologist that will go up and debate them. And I think, oh, my days. You know, if Lee Strobel is one of the, um, the greatest Christian apologists of our time, who was an out-and-out atheist who tried to prove that God didn't exist. And, you know, by studying for himself, actually turned out that, yeah, yeah, God did exist. And he's a, an incredible apologist. And sometimes when I, I, I listen to... Um, those people, uh, and uh, you know, arguing or defending something, I think, oh, my days, wow. Um, you know, we kind of think, oh, would we be able to do that? You know, would we be able to uh, have the mental fortitude then to be able to defend a cause, defend our case, to fight our corner, as it were? And sometimes there may be people that you come in contact with that you think, ah, oh, just can't reason with them. You just cannot argue with them. Um, and this is what Job is feeling like. 
He's basically saying, what is the point? What is the use? I cannot argue against God. Um, And he acknowledges the truth um, that that God won't cast away a man of integrity. So he he doesn't understand what is going on. Um, He talks about what's the point or what's the use in trying to fight against God. In verse 40, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Who's gone up against God? You know, and you think sometimes, um, you know, of, of, of battles in the past where you think of the underdog. You know, we kind of always cheer for the underdog. We cheer for the little man, you know, the Davids against the Goliaths. But, you know, every single person is an underdog when it comes to um, God's strength. And there's no hope of us ever uh, overcoming him. Uh, and that's what Job is saying. What's the use in trying to fight against God? He is mighty in strength. There's nobody that has stood up to the Lord and has prospered. Um, Satan tried to stand up to the Lord and kind of take matters into his own hands. And look where that got him. I uh, got him cast out of the glories of heaven. The anointed cherub. who had such a high privileged position in heaven was cast out. Um, so Job is talking about God's strength. And then he talks about God's supremacy. What is the use in trying to tell the Lord what to do? You know, sometimes we come before the Lord in our prayer time and you're like, right, Lord, this is what you need to do. Uh, And the Lord's like, really? Are you omniscient? Do you know what's going on? Do you know what's happening that you would come and tell me this is what needs to happen? But that's sometimes the attitude. And Job, in fairness to him, is basically in the... There's no use in doing that. You can't just come before the Lord and, and tell him what to do because he's, he's not accountable to anybody. You know, when you think about what's the highest thing that we could swear by, if you like, if we were going to make a pledge or make an oath, what is the highest thing that we could swear by? Well, the highest thing that God knows to swear by is his own name. And that's the, the kind of the, the ultimate. So God is the ultimate authority. So who is he accountable to? And that's what Job is saying. It's like, how many times have you done this? How many times have you been on the phone and you've been speaking to somebody and you've said those immortal words, I want to speak to your manager. I want to speak to somebody higher than you. And they say, oh, well, you can't do that. I'm sorry. There's always somebody higher than you. Put your supervisor on the phone. I want to speak to a manager. I want to speak to somebody higher up. And finally, they kind of, all right, okay, I'll go and get my manager. You always want to speak to the the person in charge. Well, Job is saying, <laughs> you can't go to the Lord and say, right, I want to speak to you a boss. Because God is not accountable to anybody. Um, God uh, is the ultimate authority. Uh, and again, Job makes commendable statements as to who God is and what he's like. He removeth the mountains and they know not which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place. He, he, he's making statements about God's majesty and God's power, but he's not doing that in the sense of glorifying God. He's painting a backdrop for his own feelings of hopelessness, for his own feelings of helplessness. God is great, and Job is saying, yes, God is great, is great. But to Job, God was unremoved. God was, was removed. God was unreachable. God was uh, incomprehensible. God was out of reach, even unconcerned for what Job was going through. Job had these earthquakes in mind and assumed that the accompanying noises and the shaking 
was evidence of God's wrath towards him. He says in verse 7, which commandeth the sun and it riseth not and sealeth up the stars. Uh, in some instances, uh, the word riseth is, uh, can also be translated as shine. Uh, the question here is, is the Job talking about the Lord stopping the sun from rising? Or is he talking about the Lord stopping the sun from shining? Either one works. We know when uh, Joshua, um, you know, in the Battle of Azron, asked the Lord to uh, kind of give them the upper hand. What did he do? He made the sun stand still. So if he could make the sun stand still when it was in the middle of the sky, guess what? He can make the sun stand still when it's not visible at that part of the earth. Um, just as much as he can blot the sun's light out altogether, which uh, commandeth the sun and it riseth not and sealeth up the stars. Job's referring to those days when the Lord could literally knock the lights off from an earthly point of view. This is the, the majesty and the power and the strength of God, which alone spreadeth out the heavens. We have not even touched the surface of what is in space. Uh, you know, they talk about sending off spacecraft and we don't even, you know, we've, we've not really explored our galaxy to any great detail, really. Uh, and that's just one of millions of other galaxies. Um, I think space was just simply designed to blow man's mind because, you know, and Brother Andrew's mentioned this before, you know, we have um, countless chapters in the book of Genesis dedicated to Abraham. And yet when it comes to creation and it comes to the universe, the whole vast expanse of space is summed up with, oh, guess what? He also made the stars. That's it. You know, it's not like, oh, you wouldn't believe uh, that the galaxies are out there. You wouldn't believe that, you know, the sun, which is the brightest star in our sky, is nothing compared to some of the suns and stars in other galaxies. I don't know if you've ever seen that video where uh, it kind of shows Earth as this big planet and then it, it zooms out and it compares the Earth with the sun and then it zooms out and compares the sun, you know, with another star and then it zooms out and compares that star with like the biggest star in the galaxy. And when you look at it, Earth is like nothing. The brightest star, the sun in our sky, is nothing. And, and they talk about it being like millions and millions of atom bombs. That's the amount of energy that kind of comes from the sun. And when you look at how many of those suns, those bright stars are in space, the Bible says, hmm, yeah, God made them as well. It's no big deal. And you're like, wow. And Job is saying, he just spread it out the heavens. It's kind of like, like laying a table. There it is. It's, it's nothing. And it, it didn't take much. I just, I just spoke and, and there they were. And you look up into the night sky and you're just like, wow. How anybody could think that it just went boom. And there it was. There's absolute perfection. That's how awesome God is. Job talks about God's control and activity in the natural sphere. The sun, the stars, the seas, the heavens, the earth. 
how incredible that when you come up against a, an entity like that, a deity like that, a person like that, how could you even begin to start arguing? And here's the funny thing. Job kind of demands an audience. I want to be heard. I want to be heard. I want to be heard. And then the Lord says, right, okay, you want to hear something? And I think it's 77 questions. The Lord fires at Job. And Job is just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll keep quiet next time. He says in verse 9, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things, past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. He talks about four astral constellations uh, being part of God's making. And Pleiades uh, is a group of seven stars, which is part of the constellation of Taurus, um, always mentioned in connection with Orion. Um, some argue that Arcturus is probably part of the constellation known as the Bay or, or the Big Dipper. The Hebrew translation, I think, is, is Fool, um, and it's in correlation uh, uh, with a, a part of the, um, the three stars that form up the Big Dipper. Um, and then the Chambers of the South, uh, some say, could refer to a bright section of the sky uh, from Argus to Centuri that would have been visible from the southern horizon in Israel, whatever the four constellations are, whatever the chambers of the south are, what Job is saying is, is look, God made all of them. Andrew was talking, Andrew Davis mentioned last week about, you know, um, uh, being taught the constellations. If you were to look up into the night sky, how many constellations could you pick out? When and what is it? The plough. The plough, which is also known as the Big Dipper. Well, so I'm, I am sure my ignorance here now. What's the saucepan? It's the same. Is it the Big Dipper? Yeah. The one that looks like a saucepan. It's just got like four and then a handle. Yeah, that's, that's the plough, is it? Yeah. So here we are. Look at us. We're useless. None of us got a clue. <laughs> but you look up into the sky and, and, and sometimes you're just blown away by the vastness of space. And regardless of what these constellations are, whether it's, you know, whether it's that group of stars or that group of stars or that group of stars, what Job is saying is, is, is look, God, God just made all of this. He made these constellations. He made the chambers of the south. And he says in verse 11, Lo, he goeth by me and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. The praise that Job has ends with this verse and then he begins to describe the negative side of this mighty wonder-working God, this powerful God, this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. Job is saying, to me, he's invisible because I, I can't feel his presence. He might be all-knowing, but Job feels like he doesn't know anything about Job. He might be all-present, but Job feels like He's nowhere to be found. He may be all-powerful, but at this very moment in time, Job feels like he's been hard done by, overlooked. And he was frustrated. He knew God was at work, because that's evident all around him. He said, I know he's in work. I know because of the stars. I know because of creation. I know because of the seas. I know because of the heavens. I know God's at work. 
but I can't feel him at work in my life. Have you ever felt like that? You know he's there, but you can't feel that he's there. You know he loves you because you only need a look at the cross to know how much he loves you. But because of what you are going through right now, it doesn't feel like he loves you. You know he's real because the prayers that have been answered in the past, it's far too coincidental that they've been answered in that way for him not to be real. He's shown himself to be real to you time and time and time again. But in this instance, in this moment, at this time, at this trial, at this difficulty, struggling to feel that presence and struggling to feel that love and struggling to feel that reality. And you think of what Job has lost. You think of what Job is going through. You think of the abuse that his friends have heard him. I mean, Bill had pretty much said, well, your kids deserved it. Imagine somebody coming up to you and comforting you at a time of loss, saying, ah, oh, well, you know, your relative has just passed away. They probably deserved it anyway. Oh, great. You imagine how Job is feeling right now. And he's just frustrated because he couldn't see God. How many of you remember this? You'll understand what I'm saying now when I, I say this. When I was little, who remembers Paul Daniels? Do you know what used to frustrate me more than anything? Is I didn't have a clue how he did what he did. And my dad would be sat on the set. He would go, no, I know he did that. And I go, how did he do that? And he'd never tell you. And he'd be like, ah, oh, so frustrated. And you were frustrated because of an illusion. Well, Job is frustrated, not because um, God is performing an illusion. So please don't take that the wrong way. But, you know, as, as frustrated as we are when we don't understand why something is happening or how somebody did something, Job is just frustrated because he can't understand why. Why is this happening to me? God's ways went past Job. Now, we've got to give him some slack here because we have a, an insight into the why. We saw the conversation that took place in heaven. We know that God is not punishing Job because he's unrighteous. We know that God is using Job to prove to Satan that Job is not worshipping the Lord because of what he can get out of it. But Job hasn't seen that. He says in verse 12, Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? The verb taketh away only occurs here. And uh, it means to seize or to snatch. And the point that Job made is that God does what he pleases, even when it borders on what Job is almost classing as an illegal act, like something's been stolen from me. It's possible that at the loss of all his goods and with the loss of his children, he's kind of questioning the legality of what God has done in his life. God moves mountains. God shakes the earth. And if he commands the stars or the sun to not shine, then they won't because he's the one that made them. The great things and the great miracles that God performs are too marvellous for the human mind to even comprehend. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
He says then in verse 13, if God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. All bad things that happened to the world or to people were viewed as an expression of God's anger. That's what he basically said in verse 5, which removeth the mountains and they know not which overturneth them in his anger. So in this regard, Job held a common view that God always punishes evil, even though the wrong can't be identified. His retributive justice extends even to mythical sea creatures. And there's a mythical sea creature mentioned in verse 13. Does anybody know what it is? It's similar to Leviathan. It's, and it is classed as, as one of those. It's actually called Rahab. Um, and it's the word we've got there is proud. Um, the proud helpers, the, uh, the word is um, the mythical sea monster. Um, proud is um, actually the word um, Rahab. Um, so what Job is saying here basically is there is no use in fighting with God because even these monsters, whether it's Leviathan or Behemoth or Rahab, even these sea monsters are crushed beneath the Lord. Even he has them under control, as it were, as big as they are and as vast as they are. And Job is saying, who am I to reason with God? Who am I to come up against God? Who am I to even begin? Um, did you know they were, uh, they were people that actually took God to court? They, like I said last week, they tried to sue God. So Job is basically saying is, there's no reason that I, I could take him to court because I just can't win this argument. Um, the first 13 verses in chapter 9 are all about God's greatness and God's sovereignty. From verse 14 onwards, Job complained how those features of God's course of action affected him. Uh, and he says, what's, what's the use in these first um, few verses? What's the use in pleading with God? But then he basically says, what's the use in praying to God? Verse 14, how much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplications to my judge. If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. You see the change now? In the personal pronouns, Job's focusing on himself. Um, he said, if, if he will contend, he is wise. Um, you know, he shakes the earth. Uh, but now he's turned it around to him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer. But I would make supplications to my judge. If I had called and had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. From here to the end of the chapter, the personal pronouns dominate. We know that Job is innocent. We know that God is not punishing Job because of his unrighteousness. We know that God's not punishing Job because of his sin. We know that God is not being vindictive towards um, Job because of some, uh, you know, to get even with Job because of something wrong that Job has done in his life. But Job feels like he's not getting a fair trial. You can almost feel him saying, look, this is just not fair. What's the 
What's the use in pleading with God? What's the use in arguing against him? What's the use in praying to him? Because I just don't feel like I'm being heard. I feel like if I did get an audience with him, it's just blocking his ears to me. Job is right in one sense. You know, I, I love, I, I, I read one uh, commentary. Uh, it, it was quite different. Uh, it wasn't a, like a, uh, an expositional commentary on Job chapter 9, but it basically talked about how Job chapter 9 and 10 was a perfect gospel presentation because what Job is basically saying here is we're sinners. And he's right. We are sinners. We, we don't deserve to go before a holy God. We don't have anything to offer. We're all sinners. We have no defense when it comes to the matter of sinfulness. Romans tells us quite clearly, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Job just felt that he, was, he wasn't getting a fair trial, that he was a victim of the, the legal system that was unfair. You know, he was going up against a far more superior intelligence and he just, he just didn't have the accolades to go up against God. We are sinners. We have no defense when it comes to our sinfulness. I would only hope is that the Lord is merciful to us. It's because of his grace, because of his mercy, not because of our righteousness, not because of our good deeds, not because of anything we have or are. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. His mercies are new every morning. But you can almost feel as, as the chapters go on, you, you can just feel Job getting more and more and more cynical. Uh, the further on it goes, with all the trials that he was facing, he says, if I called upon the Lord and he answered me, I, I don't believe that he would actually listen to what I was saying. You know, and there are many people that believe that today, that prayer is a waste of time. How many, again, we've, we've said this so many times, how many use prayer as a last resort? How, how many spend as much time in prayer as they do with their daily Bible reading? How many spend as much time in prayer as they do any other task of the day? So we recognise the fact that even believers can sometimes be sceptical when it comes to prayer. And that's unfortunate because prayer is never a waste of time. You know, the Lord has, has told us to come before him. The Lord wants us to come before him. And you say, yeah, but the Lord knows what we have need of even before we ask. So therefore, why do we need to come before him? Because he wants us to. The Lord knew where Adam and Eve were. He didn't need to spend time with them in the Garden of Eden because he knew exactly where they were without physically being there. So you could say that it wasn't for God's benefit walking physically in the Garden of Eden. It was for Adam and Eve's benefit. Prayer is not just for God's benefit for us to be able to go before his throne of grace. It's for our benefit. He wants us to come before him in prayer. 
If we are angry with the Lord or we're bitter towards him because we didn't get something we wanted or he didn't answer uh, in a way um, that we thought he should, can I say don't fall into that trap? Because that's exactly where Satan wants you to, to be. Satan will whisper in your ears, well, what's the point in praying then? God didn't answer you. God can't be real if he didn't answer your prayer. God can't love you if he didn't take that illness away. God can't care for you if he didn't allow you to do that. We don't know why God has put a roadblock in our path. Why is he stopping us from doing something that we want to do so badly? Is it because he knows the outcome? What could happen to us if we went down that path? Is he putting a block to something because he knows that something bad's going to happen to us? But we get angry with him when he doesn't answer our prayer. One of the greatest sources of power that we have is prayer. David said, even in the morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. When Daniel was told not to pray, that it was illegal to pray, what's the first thing that he did? He opened up the window, faced towards Jerusalem and prayed like he did every other time. He knew the importance of prayer. Jesus told us himself, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. God has given us incredible promises when we call unto him. Because when we call unto him, Jeremiah says, he answers us and shows us great and mighty things. Isaiah said, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. You know, how many times have we heard of answered prayer? You know, missionaries. The amount of stories I've heard of missionaries. There was a story of a, uh, one missionary who was in uh, like a, 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 the jungles of South America and literally the tribe uh, was getting ready to, to kill the family because, you know, they'd encroached on their village and they'd brought this nonsense with them and the tribe were literally coming up to attack the house. And before they could attack the house, they just all fled away. When years later, the chief became a believer, he explained to the mission what happened that night. They came to attack the house and they saw that the family were praying. But they couldn't just see the family praying. They saw hundreds of guards standing around the hut. There was no physical beings there. But God had promised to put a hedge of protection around them. I've heard stories of missionaries. There was a, a, a story of one missionary in India. And despite 17 years of effort, um, the work was fruitless. Um, so the, the mission society decided to close the work down. Um, they actually dubbed the work Forlorn Hope. Um, so before the work was closed down on New Year's Day in 1854, the missionary went up onto a hillside at sunrise and they just prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Um, they claimed the words from Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains of the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Having so read... They joined in prayer, pleading with God that he would send the perfect man. And that mountain became known as Prayer Meeting Hill. 
Ten years later, a farmer by the name of John Cliff was working in a field in Iowa when he received news that his application had been accepted by the American Missions Foreign uh, American Baptist Foreign Mission Society, and they were going to send him to a place called Forlorn Hope. Arriving in India, he went to work, preaching, praying, leading, and working tirelessly. Uh, during 1876 and 1878, there was a, a great drought in India. But thousands of people came um, because of his works of mercy, because of his message, and a, an incredible revival swept through. He baptized 2,200 converts. The conversions continued, and in 39 days, they baptized 8,691 new Christians. 24 national preachers were ordained to oversee the young, exploding church. And during the course of revival, over 20,000 people accepted Christ as their saviour. What if 10 years earlier, when the mission society said, pack up and come home, they just went, yeah, do you know what, you're right. But one simple prayer. That's the power of prayer. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Job is pretty much saying, what's the point in praying? What if God did answer Job? What would he say? You know, in those moments in the courtroom where they get a chance to do the cross-examination, what, what if that took place? How could Job answer God's cross-examination? How does one reason with God or present one's case before God? Because we see at the end of the chapters that when God does finally speak, when Job does get his demands met, he wants to hear from God and God says, okay, gird up your loins. Here we go, prepare for battle. Job is left absolutely speechless. Job couldn't answer a single one of those 77 questions that God asked him. His only response was to admit his ignorance and then to remain silent. Pastor Ed's, one of Pastor Ed's favourite sayings was, it's better to remain silent and people to think that you're an idiot than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. <laughs> We're not always going to understand why God does what he does. But when we understand God's character, that just enables us then to trust him. Because even though we don't know why he does what he does, he knows why he does what he does. And we can trust him 100%. What is the use in pleading with God? What is the use in praying? What is the use in pursuing a pure life? And that's a question we'll answer next week. Father, thank you again for this day and for this time together and for this opportunity to come around your word, Lord. We just pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. Father, we can, we can see Job's frustration. We can see the cynicism creeping in, Lord, as he becomes more and more cynical as time gets on. We can understand to a minute degree of some of his pain and heartache but father we are blessed because we saw the conversation that took place in heaven job wasn't privy to that 
But Father, I'm thankful that at the end of all of this, Job was blessed far more uh, than, than he was at the beginning. He gained far more than he lost. So Father, help us to realize that when we walk with you as a, as a child of God, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have gained far more than we could ever lose. So Father, would you just help us in our daily walk? Help us when it comes to praying that we would never say, what's the point in praying? What's the use? You've told us to come before your presence in prayer. And Father, help us to do just that. Help us, Lord, to, to be able to come before you, to ask for help in a time of need, that we might see revival not only in our church, but in our personal lives, that we might see you do a great and mighty work in our hearts. For we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.